Hello, and welcome to the Reconstruction.us podcast, the place where people from all walks of life discuss what we can all do to transform America into a more equitable nation and ourselves in the process. My name is Kimberly Miller, and I am the host of this podcast, as well as the website re-construction.us, where you can find articles and essays, as well as more interviews like this one. As we launch this episode, the year is coming to an end, and what a year it has been. We are now less than a month away from the inauguration of our new president, Joe Biden. It's an exciting day that I know the majority of Americans are looking forward to. But if the 2020 election told us anything, it is that our country is deeply divided. In many ways, it seems that the Trump presidency, and now the coronavirus pandemic, has revealed just how broken our system is on so many levels. I don't know anyone, no matter your background or political viewpoint, who does not sense that something is terribly wrong. The problems we face now did not develop in a day or a year. They have been building or breaking down for decades, and they won't be fixed overnight either. If we are to find a way forward and mend our broken nation, I believe it is vital that we explore and understand how we got here. Only then can we find the common ground to work together for a much better solution than the road we are headed down now. Today's interview is with an outstanding author and activist, one who has spent decades on a key piece to this puzzle, a piece that is having a direct impact on our economy, jobs, and the climate. Richard Heinberg is an internationally recognized author and leader in the movement to understand and address peak oil, the post-growth economy, and an emerging resilience movement. His works include 2003's The Party's Over, Oil, War, and the Fate of Industrial Societies. He's a senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute and author of several books on energy and the environment, including Afterburn, Society Beyond Fossil Fuels, and with David Fridley, Our Renewable Future. He has lectured widely and has appeared in many documentary films, including Leonardo DiCaprio's 11th Hour. He's won an award for excellence in energy education and has been published in Nature and the Wall Street Journal. Heinberg's work is cited as one of the inspirations for the International Transition Towns Movement, which seeks to build community resilience ahead of climate change. And welcome, 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 Richard. (laughs) Thank you, Kim. It's great to be with you. Uh, Well, I am truly, truly honored to um, have you with us. I I have to tell you, it's it's a great honor for me, particularly because I first read your book on uh, a no-growth society about 10 years ago, close to it, yeah. uh, right when I started really paying attention to climate change, but also the broader kind of implications. And it was, it had a profound effect on me. So mm. I, it was very important to me to interview somebody like you, particularly at this time, because I really think it's so important for us to be able to put into a broader context uh, what's really happening politically, culturally, globally right now, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, really on every level. Um, So could we actually start with your book on the end of growth? Uh, Mm -hmm. It seems to me that so much of what we're living with right now is a direct uh, correlation to the kinds of predictions you made in that book. Mm, Right. Well, the point I, I... One of the points I made in the book is that we've gotten used to economic growth as being normal and natural and and the solution to all our problems, but it certainly wasn't always this way. Economic growth is largely an artifact of fossil fuels. You know, energy is necessary for absolutely everything. Everything we do requires energy. So when we started using fossil fuels in the 19th century, Suddenly, we had this source of uh, energy. It was basically uh, millions of years of ancient sunlight that had been compressed into these fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, 
that could be relatively cheaply extracted from the earth. And then they were, they were portable, they, they were storable. Uh, they, they were much more energy dense than any of our previous sources of energy like firewood. And that enabled us to do things that we couldn't do before. When we applied it to agriculture, for example, uh, previously, you know, 70 to 90% of a, a given society's population was involved in food production, were basically farmers or peasants, so mm -hmm. that there could be this little surplus of food energy to support, you know, the aristocrats and the king and his family and the soldiers and, and so on. But with mechanized agriculture, we only need one or two percent of the population working full time at food production. So what do you do with the, those other people? Well, they move to cities and get jobs in manufacturing, sales, distribution and so on. The middle class. So the middle class is an artifact of uh, fossil fuels. Um, and, and as we could use more energy for manufacturing, we discovered we had a problem, uh, which was the problem of overproduction. With cheap fossil fuels, we could make more of any typewriters and cars and you name it than people would ordinarily want to buy or be able to buy. And this is one of the contributing factors of the Great Depression, overproduction. So we solved that problem with uh, by by remaking the economy and the new economy that we made was called consumerism and the idea is we use advertising to talk people into wanting more stuff and then we use consumer credit debt basically to enable people to buy more stuff than they can pay for right away and the more we consume the more jobs are created, the more tax revenues go to government, the more profits go to the industrialists, the economy grows, and theoretically, everybody's happy. Of course, there's a problem with this, which is, you know, the, the economy uses uh, stuff from the earth, and the earth is a finite planet. So how long can you continue to grow the economy and its extraction of resources and dumping of wastes before that becomes a real problem. And in the book, The End of Growth, I said, well, we're, we're getting to that point. We're getting to the point where we can't continue growing this thing much longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I have to say that this whole idea of our society really being built around fossil fuels not just in terms of driving my car or, you know, some of the things we've been talking about. I mean, hey, I was in elementary school in the 70s. I remember mm. the first Earth, Earth Day. Day. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, ideas historically, as I understood it around ecology, were, gosh, I need to walk more and drive less. <laughs> not necessarily the idea that the entire foundation of our economy is based on on this incredibly rich source of energy that is finite. And I know something that I've referred to in the last decade since reading your book and, and many others, uh, Kusler, et cetera, has been this concept of peak oil, um, which I find most people I talk to still have never heard of. So could you actually give us maybe sort of a brief uh, introduction to what the heck we mean when we say peak oil and why that matters at this point if we aren't having continuous economic growth? Right. Well, uh, oil is the most important of the fossil fuels in terms of, you know, our economic dependency because virtually all transportation depends on it. We use oil for other things. We make plastics out of it and so on. But really transportation is the key. I mean, if, if we didn't have oil-fueled transportation, we wouldn't have globalization, we wouldn't have cheap products made in China, we wouldn't have industrial agriculture, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's key to our economy. But as you say, it's, it's a finite, depleting resource. So is this a problem? When will it be a problem? Well, there are two factors. One is, we have to understand the exponential function. Growth is not just incremental. 
you know, uh, our, let's say our use of oil grows by a million barrels a day per year. No, it doesn't work that way. It grows by a certain percentage each year and that's compounded. It's like if you have credit card debt, you know, you may start out with being a thousand dollars in debt, but you know, that uh, after the end of, of the first year, if it's 20% interest, you know, it's $1,200 in debt. But the following year, you're not adding another $200 in debt. It's the interest on that $1,200. So that adds up really fast. It becomes a very steep curve. So as it ends up, um, you know, we've we've been increasing our usage of resources like oil by about 2% annually, which doesn't sound like very much, but the, again, this is compounded. So when you look at it over a longer period of time, we've used half the oil we've ever used in all of human history just in the last 25 years. Wow, and, 25 years. And if it were to continue growing at the current rate, we would double that again over the next 25 years. Mm -hmm. So that exponential growth really, after a while, it really becomes a, a big deal. The other thing we have to understand about non-renewable resources like oil is that we extract them using the low-hanging fruit principle, which means we go after the, the, the stuff that's easiest to get and it's the highest quality first, and then we leave the hard to get lower quality stuff for later. Okay, well, we've been extracting oil for 150 years now, so it's, it's kind of getting to be later you know, the cheap, easy stuff has, is already spoken for. It's all, mm. already either been extracted and burned or it's in the process of being extracted. And what's left is, you know, the Canadian tar sands, ultra deep water oil where you have to go through a mile or three of ocean water before you even start drilling. Or uh, what petroleum geologists call tight oil, which is oil that's in rocks that are have very low permeability. So it's really stuck in those rocks and you have to use force to get it out. And that's what fracking is all about. It's about exploding the rocks and pumping in water and forcing the oil into the, the well bore so that you can, you can extract it. All of these production techniques of unconventional oil are more expensive. So the, the low hanging fruit are gone and it's getting harder and harder to get what's left. At some point, it simply isn't possible to continue increasing the rate at which we're extracting this depleting resource. It's not as though all the oil is gone. We're not about to run out of oil. There's still lots of oil in the earth's crust, but what's left is, uh, is going to take more effort to get. And there's a way of measuring this. Um, it's called energy returned on energy invested. See, it has, we have to invest energy to go out and find oil, to drill oil wells, to extract it out of the ground and so on. All of that takes energy, but we rely on the, the prospect that the oil that we get out of the ground, is gonna have so much more energy than we had to invest in getting it, that the whole project will be well worthwhile. Well, that was true in the old days. These days, not as much the energy profit ratio is declining with each passing year. And theoretically, at some point in the future, we don't know exactly when that will be, it won't even make sense from an energy standpoint to go out and drill for more oil. You know, it might be useful as a, you know, to make plastic out of or something like that. But as an energy source, again, it won't make sense because it'll take more energy to get out of the ground than it will give you when you, when you have it. Well, can you concretize that for us a little bit more? Um, because I think that's a really hard thing to comprehend, you know, right. if you haven't really spent some time looking at this. I mean, when you say it takes a lot more now or this idea of energy spent to get energy, what would that difference be, let's say, 30 years ago to get a barrel of oil versus what it takes to get a barrel of oil now? Well, 30 years ago, we were looking at an energy profit ratio of about 50 to 1. So, so for every barrel of oil I spent, energy I spent to get oil out of the ground, it would get me 50. 
Right. Okay. And you have to think, think of this in, in historic terms. The energy profit ratio for agrarian societies, for farming, you know, when we had, you know, 75% of the people were peasants and, and they were supporting uh, the people who lived in town and, and were kings and soldiers and blacksmiths and so on. The energy profit ratio for agrarian society was about three to one. So wow. with a 50 to one energy profit ratio, we've had so much surplus energy with which to, you know, make iPods and iPads and send rockets to the moon and do all of these amazing things. I mean, what, what we've managed to do in the last century, I mean, I don't have to tell you, we all know is completely unprecedented in world history. Uh, we've grown the population from at the start of the Industrial Revolution, there were 1 billion people on Earth. Today, there's almost 8 billion. So we've increased the population by a factor of eight. And then the per capita usage of energy on a global basis has all also grown eightfold. So each of us, on average, is using eight times as much energy as somebody living in 1820. But of course, in the wealthy industrial countries like the United States, it's much more than that. You know, we use a hundred times as much energy as somebody in a really poor country like you know Bangladesh or um, equatorial Africa or something, someplace like that. So you know, we're we're swimming in energy, and we think it's normal. You know, we've gotten used mm. to this level of energy usage and all of the things that it brings. And we think, well, this, this is how people are supposed to live. But it's all based on this resource that, you know, is not going to be around forever and may not even be around for decades more. You know, so what do we do? What's our plan B? That's what we really should, should be thinking about. Yes, yes. Well, and needless to say, I would love to spend some time talking more about a more recent history. As I understand it, um, peak oil was first identified um, by an expert in the oil industry back before the U.S. crash of oil in the 70s uh, when we started running out. And we've essentially lived through that. And now we're mirroring it again, but on a global scale, which was something that frankly blew my mind when I started really thinking about it because I could look back at my own child. I mean, I remember the the oil crash of the seventies. I was, you know, eight, 10 years old in the early seventies. And so uh, when people started lining up at pumps with those giant cars, I was there with my mom, you know, (laughs) who was trying to drive me to school in the morning and uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but I can remember her having a dollar in her pocket and being able to buy two gallons of gas because it was 50 cents a gallon at that time. And that was in the middle of the crisis uh, or maybe just before it. So, you know, you look from then to now when obviously prices have expanded so much and it makes sense in terms of what you're saying that if it's costing us more and more and more to get that same barrel or gallon, well, of course, prices are going to go up. The, The economy is not logical though. Okay. So tell me, tell me what you mean. You would think that as oil gets harder to get and more scarce, prices would just naturally go up. And to a certain extent, it does work that way. I mean, uh, back in 2000, in 2005, ordinary conventional oil stopped growing. And all the increase in production we've seen since then has been from fracking and from deep water oil and Canadian tar sands and so on, which is, again, harder to get, more expensive and everything. And in in 2007, the price of oil went all the way up to $150 a barrel, the highest level ever seen. But then afterward, the the oil price crashed because the the price of oil depends not just on its scarcity, how hard it is to get, but also on demand. How, what's the, what's the status of the rest of the economy? Do we, or, you know, if the economy is crashing, then people aren't flying in airplanes and, and doing all these things. So demand for oil recedes. So what actually happens as the cost of oil production goes up 
is that there's a bigger and bigger gulf between what people can afford to pay and what's profitable for the oil industry. So we're currently we're in a situation where the oil industry really needs prices that are much higher than they are if if they're going to break even and make a profit. The oil industry is losing money hand over fist right now. I mean, we're used to thinking of the big oil companies as these, you know, huge profit-making machines, but they're all in the doldrums right now. And especially the smaller companies that specialize on these hard-to-get resources. They're, you know, they're deep in debt. The banks are taking them over. They're folding up shop, basically, because they can't afford to be in business without oil prices much higher than where they are. But when oil prices go that high, as they did in 2007, the economy crashes because people can't afford to buy gasoline to drive to work and go on vacation and, and so on. So um, it, it's it's sort of the Goldilocks principle, you know, it's the not too big, not too small, just right. It used to be uh, up until about 15 years ago, there was always that Goldilocks price for oil that worked for consumers, that worked for oil companies. Oil, oil companies were very profitable. Consumers were happy, but that just doesn't exist anymore. The oil industry has become completely dysfunctional. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 not many people are able to understand why that is and trace it back to the fact that we've simply used up the low-hanging fruit. Right. And I think it's really important for folks to be aware also that your dates are no accident. You know, you're talking about 05, we really hit the height of peak oil and then we get to 07 and we've got a major economic global crash and we've really never recovered from that. Um, And one of the things that I've really been focusing on in some recent writing for my website, reconstruction.org, excuse me, .us is that, um, you know, we, if you look at the national statistics, uh, the the sort of traditional media statistics, um, supposedly we had a great unemployment recovery, right? right? But in actual fact, if you look at the real numbers, meaning people that got thrown off of the unemployment rolls because they quote unquote gave up looking for work we really have an additional 30 million people that have been out of work for since that time, which as we'll talk about in a minute, I think has everything to do with where we've gotten to politically. Um, But I think that not to say that uh, peak oil is the only issue, but to really understand that we're now hitting up against essentially peak resources across the board in an economy that requires we keep using more and more of them in order to stay quote unquote healthy, which is what I really took away from your first book. And which is pretty, I mean, it's scary, right? Because it means that everything that we've really relied on for my generation, my parents' generation, even my grandparents' generation you know, what we've come to expect as normal just isn't anymore, which right. I think really brings us right to where we are today. And I I would love to just um, ask for your thoughts. I mean, look at 2020. Who can deny that we're not in a problem time, that there isn't something terribly wrong. I mean, we just talked about the fires that you're experiencing there in California. We've got the uh, ice shelf that just broke off again. We've got uh, water supplies, even as simple as fixing the water supply in Flint, Michigan. Years later, it's such a fundamental uh, infrastructure investment that just isn't happening. And then on top of that, um, and of course, we could point to a hundred other things, but obviously we've got this coronavirus and we've got another hurricane coming in and a record hurricane season. Um, It seems to me that these are all the sorts of things you were predicting in your other book, Afterburn which I actually went back and looked again at last night, knowing we were going to be talking today. And what struck me when I was going through it was I could sort of see where I had highlighted things a few years ago. 
And then last night I was highlighting, oh yeah, that happened this year. This happened this year. This happened this year, (laughs) you know? So um, I think more than anything, um, if you can help us understand how these things are really interrelated with this idea of a both growth economy and what happens when you start to hit a no growth economy. Right. Well, um, See, we we have used growth for decades and decades to paper over the problem of economic inequality. Complicated society, complex societies, uh, starting with agrarian societies, early state societies, going all the way back to Babylonia, were were wealth pumps. You know, you had seventy five, ninety percent of the people uh, working at farming, and then the surplus that they produced went up to the the upper classes, the aristocrats, the kings, the soldiers, the elites in the city. And that's how society worked. Taxation was a wealth pump. And then once we started using money and debt, then debt was also a wealth pump because it implied interest. And so Mm. the, the wealth of society was always being funneled up to the upper classes until things got to where they would didn't work anymore and you know the the peasants couldn't survive on the little that they they were able to keep for themselves and then there'd be a, a revolt or a society would collapse or there would be a debt jubilee and all the debts would be forgiven or you know something like that and they, the, these were regular cycles that happened there uh, a, a number of, of historians now have one of the great things about the fossil fuel era is we've had surplus energy with which to do science and analyze all this stuff. So now there are huge databases of uh, archaeological information about ancient societies, and we can see that there were these cycles, very reliable cycles of growth with all the wealth being funneled upward and then collapse. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't do away with the wealth pump when we invented modern industrial societies. In fact, the, the wealth pump, you know, had more to work with uh, as more people were going into debt, living in, in uh, cities and buying stuff on credit and, and all of that interest was going up to those who were in position to loan money. And uh, people who uh, were in position to form corporations could buy resources, buy land that happened to have oil or coal uh, underneath it and pay a fraction of the real value of those resources and then make tons of money extracting and selling those resources. They didn't make those resources. Nobody made the oil or coal or other minerals that are underground. We just, you know, we just claim ownership of them and then make huge profits. So the wealth pump continued, but we we papered it over with the idea of growth. You know, if the if the whole pie is growing, then even if the the people at the top of the economic pyramid are getting bigger and bigger slices all the time, then the the little guy, you know, the the, the person who's, you know, a school teacher or a postal worker or whatever, they're still getting their slice is still growing a little bit too, so they shouldn't have anything to complain about. And then we also developed some ways of sharing some of that wealth, like progressive taxation and government programs, social security, food stamps, and all these other things to keep people from just you know falling off the the economic table altogether. But that was that was in the context of this constant economic growth. Okay, so what happens when the economy stops growing? The people at the top of the economic pyramid, they've been used to big you know, slices of the pie and those slices growing all the time. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to give that up. But meanwhile, the people at the bottom of the economic pyramid are starting to lose out altogether. They, they're finding they can't pay rent. They can't afford to do the basic things you have to do to be part of this society anymore. We're reaching one of those inflection points that happen that has happened with uh, complex societies all down through history, where you know something's got to change. And whether it's a massive forgiveness of debt or a basic rethinking of the economic system itself, or 
something else. I don't know, but it, it can't keep going the way it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what people are feeling. And that's why we have so much political polarization and uh, all the rest. Well, of course, we have other factors feeding into that, you know, the social media and the demise of three, three network news and local newspapers and all of that sort of thing. We don't even live in the same country all anymore. You know, we live in blue states and red states. It's, it's getting, you know, really scary and, and unpleasant but it's it's you know we have to understand it's be, it's not just because people are getting ornery <laughs> yes <laughs> it's because, exactly because of these deeper fact these deeper historical factors yes. that are coming coming to play yeah i i agree 1000% and i and i think it's so incredibly important to understand these dynamics right now because otherwise it really just looks like wow, there's a lot of people really pissed off at each other all of a sudden. Mm. Gee, what happened? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But in actual fact, you know, one of the things that I've really taken away from your work and, and the work of so many of your colleagues, as well as looking more deeply, um, this is for myself now, in, in recent years at the history of the United States um, and the part that both slavery in terms of essentially using slavery as a way to abscond with the value of labor um, and, you know, working, uh, taking essentially all the wealth of somebody's work, Mm -hmm. as well as literally absconding with the very land that we stand on now which obviously happened, you know, with the European um, colonization. Really, if you think back on it, what would America be if we hadn't just murdered a few million Indians (laughs) to take their land, which is our greatest resource in so many ways, second only to murdering millions of Africans and those that survived got to, you know, the average life of a slave was considered to be about five years, 150 years ago. The level of exploitation to build the kind of wealth that allowed us to then turn around and switch to oil is, I think, one of the things that is a real source of... um, of political um, conflict right now, because we are in a phase where, um, you know, like it or not, America's catching up with the planet, which means that we are not a majority white country anymore. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of human beings on the planet have never been white, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but if you're raised here and if you haven't traveled, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm counting myself here because until I lived away from Minnesota and moved to California, I was never around people who looked like me. And it made an enormous difference in my personal life and my whole way of thinking. Mm. But then when I left the country and traveled overseas and worked overseas, I had a very similar experience where for the first time I realized how isolated I was. And even having been raised progress in a progressive uh, household, et cetera, I still thought of America in a very narrow way um, mm-hmm. and tended to think of America as the center of the universe, not as a part of the planet. And so I guess what I'm getting at is it seems to me that it's not an accident that Black Lives Matter and white supremacy are hitting each other at the same time. And I I don't think that um, we can totally, I'd love to just blame one human being called Trump. I would love to. Mm -hmm. But in actual fact, this has been coming for quite a while. And it's been coming because of the economic pressure that all of us who are not in that 1% are feeling more and more. Um, I wanted to read to you a really quick quote and just, you know, uh, ask if maybe you could comment on it. There's a a writer that I've come to really appreciate named Umar Haik, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. H-A-Q-U-E on medium.com. 
And uh, he had an article that he stated that the age of Western overconsumption is really a consequence of a simple, brutal, dismal truth. 20% of the world is rich and white, and 80% is poor and not white. The 20% of the world that is rich and white is precisely that proportion which enslaved, brutalized, and colonized the part that is 80% poor and not white. Those centuries of abuse and exploitation led the rich and white societies to enjoy a generous surplus. You can think of that as everything from golden bank vaults to all of those hundreds of kinds of coffee and tea and sugar that you can find today in aisles at Walmart. The age of Western overconsumption is a product of the previous age of Western slavery, colonialism, and empire. That age allowed the West to get rich, and the West then spent its riches on consumption. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Um, Well, I'll just add a little something. Um, I've been talking about historical cycles. Well, the cycle that started with uh, European conquest starting in 1492, and there's, there's a very good book that explains why it was the Europeans that who were colonizing everybody else rather than, you know, the other way around uh, called guns, germs, and steel. And, you know, it's, it it came out in the uh, nineties authors, guy named Jared diamond, excellent book. If you haven't read it yet, very important to read. It explains it was, it was mostly a matter of uh, geography and Europeans being in the right place at the right time. And things came together Actually, the Industrial Revolution almost happened in China a thousand years earlier. Mm-hmm. The Chinese were using coal. They had a. Uh, uh, they were investing. Uh, they had money and debt. They were inventing new technologies. They were actually way ahead of Europeans in terms of technology. But the uh, the government at the time saw these industrial activities as a threat to its power. So they shut them down. So the industrial revolution happened in England in the 18th and 19th century instead, you know, 800 years later. But anyway, getting back, the historical cycle that started with European conquest would have reached its natural limits probably in the early 19th century or mid 19th century, because it was costing European powers more and more to maintain their garrisons and to keep the the people down who they had conquered. I mean, immediately upon conquest, you know, they they had major advantages. They had technology in the form of guns that other people didn't have. They also had germs. They were they they had diseases that the Native Americans and people in, in Africa didn't have. And so they passed these diseases along and killed off 90% of, of Native Americans before yes. the first European even got, even got to, you know, say what's now Missouri or uh, Kansas or someplace like that. The diseases had already swept through and killed 90% of the Native Americans. So it was easy for the European colonists to take over what seemed to be empty land. So they had some, so they had some major advantages. But as time went on, those advantages diminished. People in other parts of the world got guns too. Why? Because the Europeans were happy to sell them to them. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> somebody. Boy, there's went, a cycle that repeats as well. There was money <laughs> to be made, you know, right, in, right. In, in that respect. And, uh, and people in the rest of the world were getting used to these diseases like smallpox and, and chickenpox and measles and, and so on. So they were no longer dying in huge numbers of those diseases. And, uh, and, and so this whole cycle would probably have come to an end, probably a fairly violent end in the 19th century, but then along came fossil fuels. And again, the industrial revolution ended up happening where in England and then in North America. And so this is where the new, you know, the center of uh, industrial globalism happened to be. And uh, Europeans and European Americans then enjoyed another century and a half of growth and progress and wealth and all this good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, it's been, yes. It's been a wonderful party for those who, who got to be part of it. 
Right. Well, well, and as you pointed, we wouldn't have a middle class without that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, true. that's that's a really, really important point for folks to understand that it's not only have we been able to grow as a country, um, you know, literally by population. I mean, we're over 300 million people now, right. but how we live is really founded on that same energy source and and this whole idea of continuous growth as you pointed out in the beginning couldn't really happen without that mm. so you know it's i think what you're saying is so important because really truly and i think this is what people are are afraid about because even if you don't know all this history you know like i said in the beginning we know something's really wrong Right. right. And so when things are really wrong, you know, if you think about it, like in a family, when you, the kids start feeling, uh oh, my parents are fighting a lot, <laughs> you know, divorce is eminent, right? Before you even start thinking divorce, you just get this real pit in your stomach. And there's a real, you know, you just start worrying and, and, and you get afraid. And I feel yeah. like there's a similar thing going on. Um, in the country, and it may be, you know, realistically, probably in the world as well. But I think, um, particularly because my audience includes a lot of people of color, a voice that I have not really observed or heard much in the whole resilience movement. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, one of the things that I really wanted to do in our conversation was to try to help folks understand how the particular trajectory of our country and how deeply integrated um, the essentially we've been built on racism because without it, we couldn't have taken those resources. Yeah. Um, and so it's always been a very foundational idea, which is something that I wasn't taught to believe in a progressive yeah. family. But after living in the deep South for 10, almost 10 years, I understood deeply. And so this idea that essentially we have gone as a country from relying on energy in the in the form of slavery to energy mm -hmm. in the form of steam and coal and then energy in the form of oil and now we are clashing against the end of any of those things. Right. Um and so I guess the next question of course is what do we do? Here we are. We're not going to, I mean, there's always social class or clash, excuse me, and unrest, but I really am keenly interested in your thoughts about what are some of the solutions that can help us to heal and to move forward if, in fact, life isn't going to be the same anymore. Right. Well, there are two things. Um, one has to do with energy, because we, we've talked a lot about energy. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks who've been listening to this, and they've been going, well, why aren't they talking about solar panels? <laughs> right. Well, we, we have to transition to renewable energy sources, nuclear the consensus of, of real energy experts who haven't been bought off by the nuclear industry is that nuclear is basically going nowhere. Um, and we need new energy sources that are ready to go right now. We can't afford you know, 20 more years of research before we actually start deploying. And solar and wind are ready to go right now. They are not, however, going to fund the kind of growth economy that we have had in the past. Yes, there are lots of jobs to be had with installing solar panels and so on. But these new energy sources are fundamentally different from fossil fuels. It's harder to store. Uh, it's more spatially extensive. In other words, you know, sunlight is everywhere. And there's a lot falling on the earth, but collecting it requires a lot of work. You know, building a lot of solar power, uh, solar panels and wind turbines, and then dealing with the intermittency of sunlight and wind requires storage, requires uh, redundancy in in sources and redoing the electricity grid and all of that. You know, we're talking about many, 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 many trillions of dollars just on supply issues. Then there's the the demand problem, which is we the way we use energy. Currently, the way we use energy is mostly in the form of 
liquid and gaseous fuels. You know, we heat most of our homes with natural gas. We cook with natural gas. We transport, whether it's by airplane or ship or car, with liquid fuel, uh, gasoline or diesel or, or, or whatever. So we have to redo most of the infrastructure that we use for for using energy. Only 20% of our energy is currently used in the form of electricity, which is what solar panels and wind turbines make. So that other 80% of energy usage has to be transitioned. So I could go into much more detail about this. I've written a whole book about it, but the transition to renewable energy is necessary. And there are a lot of good things to be said about it, but it's not going to be the same as society with cheap oil and, and coal. It's going to be a different kind of society, and we won't be able to have the kind of growth that we have had previously. In fact, we will probably need to reduce our energy usage fairly significantly, especially here in the United States, if we're going to be able to make this transition. Okay, so that's one point. The other point I wanted to make has to do with inequality. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, when the economy was growing, we could deal with inequality just by saying, you know, be patient. The whole pie is growing. Your slice will grow eventually, too. Yes. yes. Now, now that the whole pie isn't growing, the only way we're going to get through this is through is by reducing economic inequality. If we don't do that in systematic ways, you know, taxing the corporations and the one percent and finding ways to keep everybody like we we've, we've done during the coronavirus pandemic you know we uh for a while we were giving people bigger unemployment checks and finding ways to keep small businesses going and so on we have to continue doing that not just because of the pandemic but be, in order to keep our economy and our society together and working while we make this transition because if we don't it's going to come apart and I'm afraid it will be a, a, a violent process and many, many people will be hurt. Mm-hmm. So inequality is not just a matter of fairness. It certainly is a matter of fairness. And, and I believe with all my heart that, that it, just from a, a standpoint of morality and ethics, we need to be a fairer and more equal society. But also just, you know, if put yourself in the position of, you know, the elite sitting at the top of this governmental and economic machine that we've created, you know, do you want the thing to come apart and crash violently or do you want it to transform itself manageably into something that still works? Well, the only way you're going to do that is to promote more equality. Mm -hmm. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's I mean, let's face it, it's, I think, part of what makes these kind of scary times, because we don't know yet which way um, that's really going to go. And and I realize we just have a few minutes left here. You said something a little bit earlier that I think is, it's it's almost like a third rail issue, but something that I'd, I think we need to to emphasize here. And that is that Part of the reality that we're coming up against is that life isn't going to be the same. And part of what that means is that expectations we as individuals or as families, et cetera, might have had for our own future are going to need to be modified. Um, So, for example, once I really kind of got all this in my gut, uh, I had a big house in the Oakland Hills in California. I was living there, you know, with me and my dog and my hot tub and loved it very much. It was a big goal, you know, that I'd always had. But the more I started to look at what was going to be happening in the future, as well as the fact that I was tired of working 120 hours a week, I had to really rethink my values and what I was, what my spending choices and my own consumption were reflecting in terms, you know, and did those match? And the truth is they didn't. I felt very ungreen in this big old house by myself and my Aussie. Um, and I ultimately sold that house and I've been downsizing ever since. 
And I think that's something that's very scary for a lot of folks, especially if you grew up middle class or close to it in some 3,000 you know, square foot house, and that seems normal to you. Whereas right. we know half a century ago, it wasn't at all. But it seems to me that a part of what you have done that I find really exciting is this idea of resilience. And I know you have an organization that you work with called resilience.org. And this idea of living with a more of a local focus and living more kind of within, not just within your means financially, but within our means in terms of resources as well. So I was wondering if uh, perhaps we could kind of end on discussing a little bit more this idea of personal household resilience and how that can fit into a positive future even if we can no longer live in a McMansion? Yeah, well, I think that the big environmental organizations really shot themselves in the foot. When they, you know, at first they talked about uh, reduce, reuse, and recycle. And then, you know, once Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter in 1980, and it was morning in America again, they sidelined that message. And and f- almost from then on, the message has been, well, we have to get the government to invest in renewable energy and create all these regulations and so on. Yes, we need all that stuff. Yes, we do. We do. Yeah. But at the same time, we each as individuals, as households, also need to take responsibility. It's exactly the same thing as with the coronavirus. We need leadership at the top. We need somebody in the White House who who is going to say, look, this is a big challenge, but we can get through this together if we make some sacrifices and do A, B, and C. But then we, the people, need to do A, B, and C. You know, we need to wear our masks. We need to uh, do social distancing and or, uh, physical distancing, I prefer to call it, and all of these things. And the same thing with, with what we're talking about on a, on a bigger scale. We need leadership at the top um, for the, the, the energy transition, let's call it. But we also need to take personal responsibility in our lives. And I don't just mean buying an electric car. I mean, really thinking through your life and how dependent you are on systems beyond your control and that are fundamentally unsustainable, that are destroying the planet. How can, how can we disengage from those, those life-destroying systems and re-engage with life-enhancing systems? Because if one thing we could do with good leadership at the top is to get off of GDP as a measure of how well the economy is doing. GDP is just how much money are we spending uh, in total? Right. Well, which if we're okay. not consuming all the time, we shouldn't be spending as so much, So we're spending right? more money. We should all be happy. No, yeah. I mean, yeah. we should be measuring how happy we are, you know, right. uh, gross national happiness instead of gross national product. Um, and and there are economists who've thought this through and they've come up with alternative measures that take into account the health of the environment, our social cohesiveness, uh, how few people are in prison rather than how many people are, you know, ra- rather than putting more people in prison, we should, a healthier society would have as few people as, as possible and on and on. You know, the, if we, if we measure and track and target the things that actually make society work better and that make people happier. We could do those things. We could accomplish those things with a lot less energy usage and with a lot less spending of money and a lot less debt. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if we do those things, you know, we, we can get through this and actually be happier in the process and as, as we get out the other side. If we don't, if we just insist on, you know, measuring everything with money and maintaining our share of the pie, you, know, you can see where that leads and it doesn't lead to a good place. Mm-hmm. Well, I I completely understand what you're saying. And, and I can tell you uh, from personal experience, sure, I loved that house. It was a bitchin' house. But you know what? It didn't make me happier. It didn't. And I think that is something that maybe I'm one of those people that just needed to learn that by doing it. But having had that experience, 
anybody will tell you that there's never been a research project that has said that people are happier because of stuff, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, in fact, it's the opposite. And I, to me, it seems that that's where things like looking at local support is a place where uh, no matter where you're living, if you are in a city, if you are in the country, et cetera, um, you know, it is that social glue. It is that helping each other out that makes you feel good. And feeling good is what happiness is, right? It's the quality of our relationships. Yes. That's what determines our quality of life. And as we experience more disasters, we're finding this out. I mean, here in, in uh, Santa Rosa, where we've had all these wildfires, and then we had a flood last year. Yeah. You know, it's your neighbors that you fall back on. It's not the government. You know, they come in later on, you know, and, and we're certainly very happy to have firefighters and, and all of these people. And, and we, we appreciate them so much. But, you know, at, at three o'clock in the morning, when Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa was on fire and the fire was headed in the direction of our house, it wasn't the fire department who warned us. It was our neighbors. And mm. when the when the electricity was out for two weeks, you know, we were we were out with our neighbors, you know, taking food out of our refrigerators and cooking it before it spoiled and having feasts with the whole neighborhood and so on. And you know, that's that's when people really get to know and appreciate each other. So I'm not saying we need more disasters so that we <laughs> so that we do this, but but disasters can teach us sometimes what's really important and who your real friends are. Yes, yes. Well, and I can tell you from conversations I've had with folks who live in both South Minneapolis and North Minneapolis when uh, in the early days of the George Floyd protests, mm. you know, you know, it wasn't far be it from what the uh, Trump ads might tell you. It was not African-Americans burning down their own city. We were literally invaded by white supremacists from all over the country, right. as well as locally. And uh, they were actually driving around in trucks uh, because of white supremacist websites in North Minneapolis, supposedly to protect the city. But they were shooting at black people. And it was local folks in North Minneapolis that got together and protected their community. Um, and those kind of efforts are still um, really generating a lot of positive organizing in North Minneapolis. Same thing in South Minneapolis. I have friends that live close to where Lake Street was burning, and it was the neighbors getting together and starting to patrol the um, uh, alleys who found boxes pre-placed of incineration devices and things like that. You know, they weren't coming from their neighbors. Right. So I think your point is really a good one, just in terms of how much looking out for each other. It's so simple, but uh, it's also what they did during World War One with Victory Gardens. Yeah. Right. When just something as simple as instead of pan planting roses, start planting tomatoes. I mean, that stuff that if you own your house and you own that little plot of land, you can do that now or out your balcony. And even starting with those basic things, I think is something. And I, I certainly personally want to encourage a lot more folks to start thinking about and doing, uh, moving beyond thinking and into right. doing. So uh, I, I know we have already gone over our time and you have been so generous um, with me and with our listeners here today, Richard. Again, I, I just mm -hmm. want to thank you so very much. And I would just appreciate it if maybe you could tell us where can folks find more about you and your work with the Post Carbon Institute, resilience.org, et cetera? Right. Well, resilience.org is our, our public website that's uh, updated every day with fascinating articles about all the things we've been talking about, basically. So that's, that's where people should go first. I also have a course called Think Resilience, and it's available for free online. And it goes step by step through, um, you know, I've, I've talked in kind of general terms and briefly about some things having to do with um, the environment, climate change, historical cycles, uh, depletion, all of these things. But uh, the course goes into much more, more depth and it's, it's an online video course. So 
just Google Think Resilience Heinberg and you can you can find that. Um, so those are the two things I think I, I mentioned. Okay, well, fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and good luck out there. I truly hope that um, you continue to stay safe and your family stay safe. You yes, too, Kimberly. yes. Okay, have a great day. Thanks again. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. This brings us to the end of another Reconstruction.us podcast. Before we go, I would just like to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for your support. 2020 has been a wild ride, but one of the good things that has come out of it for me was getting the Reconstruction.us website and these podcast interviews off the ground. I truly hope that you have found these discussions informative and empowering. Our focus in 2021 will be all about moving forward into a better future for all of us. Please come back and hear more interviews with leaders and activists from all walks of life who are committed to transforming America into a more resilient and equitable nation. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share these episodes far and wide as well. We really want to grow this project in the coming year, and your support is critical in making that happen. Thanks again for your support, and onward to 2021.